bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. Your thousand dollars cannot reproduce until it enters into a covenant. Westboro Baptist Church will pick at their funeral. We will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. This is the Greco Brothers. Live from the Mecca of Mormon, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where biblical Christianity meets American evangelicalism face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to participate in this, his ministry. We pray his spirit upon you and us tonight. You know, let me remind you that uh, the ministry is aimed at helping anybody who's searching for truth, but primarily, especially to the LDS, that's still part and parcel of what we do and why we do things. And in the course of reaching out to them with truth and freedom in Christ, we've been able to reach other people, and we are really grateful to... Uh, be used that way, but the primary purpose is to expose Mormonism for what it is and uh, to introduce LDS people to the true and living God, uh, even Jesus Christ. And we realize that our job uh, includes preparing people who leave Mormonism with what to do thereafter. And you, you have to see our emails to understand how this is a real uh, viable concern. It's a problem. People leave and then they say, where do I go? I've gone to this church. I've gone to that church. And so uh, we saw that uh, this, uh, we have to help the LDS and people who watch the program understand what is good faith and what is uh, bad faith. Now, of course, we weren't allowed to do this on the former television station, but this is why we're examining American evangelicalism today and for this year with the remaining months that we have. Just a reminder. All right, on Sunday, June 23rd from 6 to 8 p.m., we're having an open house of our studio here at the factory. The address is there on your screen and the details. Uh, on the days that we're not using this facility, which are really Sunday and Tuesday and possibly Thursday nights, uh, we want to open it up to Christian churches and our other ministry to utilize the production facilities. Some of you have ideas for programs you want to air. Some of you have teachings you want to record. Uh, you might be uh, um, want to develop uh, advertisements for your church. All of those things we want to help. You might even run those advertisements or programs on TV20. We might be able to partnership with them. We'll do the production for you. You give them that, and they'll air it on their station. So tell your pastor and or audio video people uh, on your church to come on over Sunday night, <coughs> excuse me, June 23rd uh, from 6 to 8, and check us out. Um, go to www campus with hyphens for more information. Last week, we had a caller present me with a scripture he is of the opinion that a person cannot, it's impossible for an individual who has been saved to uh, lose, and I use that term loosely, to walk away from their salvation even if they no longer believe. Even if they have become an atheist, it's impossible for them to become unsaved. That is a tenet of Calvinism. Uh, once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints. And standing alone, the passage he used was from 2 Timothy 2.13. It says by itself, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. All right? So I got online and I see that this passage is used time and time and time again by many people to support the idea that there is absolutely nothing, including unbelief, that would allow a person to walk from faith. And when our caller presented this verse, I admitted that in and of itself, it had merit to the argument. That boy, it seems like when you're reading that, 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 what he was saying was true. So over the course of teaching on television, we have stressed a number of times that context is everything. Um, we want to take biblical uh, exegesis, an exegetical approach to studying scripture. That's a Greek word that means to lead out from, exegetical, exegesis, to lead out from. And so what you want to do is when you're reading the scripture, you want the scripture to lead out. 
to lead out from the scripture what the intent is, not an eisegetical approach, which is to read into the meaning of the scripture. And, and uh, so it goes without saying that a big part of a sound exegetical approach is context. And it's context relative to the verse itself, then relative to the verses around it, and then to the book of scripture that you're in, to the testament that you're in, and then to the Bible as a whole. You have to look at all of that in order to get a sound perspective of what a single passage says. Um, So if there are 39 verses that say God is not a man, God is a spirit, but one verse that says, and God used his hands, we have to say, well, what do all those other verses mean? Does God have hands or does he not? Is he a human being or is he a spirit? And so what you do is you check out all the verses and you find out what they mean contextually. And then you're able to say, well, that must be a Hebrew uh, uh, idiom that they are using hands to anthropomorphically describe a spirit God who can't otherwise be described. How do you describe something that's spirit when you're talking about how he's doing something? And God did this. So the Hebrews would say, and God uh, used, uh, took his hand and he smote the children of Israel. So you have to do that when you're looking at scripture. So apparently the knee-jerk reaction uh, in the interpretation of 2 Timothy uh, 3.13, which supports the idea from a knee-jerk reaction that even if you, want, if you don't believe, you won't lose your salvation, um, that, that supports that idea. So let's look at it. Go back to the verse with me. In fact, let's go back two verses, all right? At verse 11, Paul writes, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Right here we find Paul giving us a qualifier for living with him. And the qualifier is dying with him. If we die to ourselves, we shall live with him, Paul says. This is the first in a short series of if-thens that Paul represents. If you do this, then this occurs. If the stance that eternal security always exists, if eternal security is there, Paul would have written, even if we don't die to ourselves, we will live with him. But that is not what he says. He gives us a qualifier, we must die with him, and the result of that dying with him is to then live with him. All right? Then in verse 12, he gives us two more if-thens. The first is a positive requirement that if obeyed, it produces a positive result. And the second is a negative action that if we take it, it produces a negative result. Listen to it. He says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. All right. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. So we have in the verse right before the one that was used, the statement, if we deny him, he will also deny us. From someone who is preaching eternal security, do they even look at the passage before and what it has to say? So again, if the premise of eternal security is true, Paul would have written, if we fail to suffer, we shall still reign with him. And even if we deny him, he will not deny us. But that is not, again, what is written, just the opposite, in fact. Just the opposite of once saved, always saved is present in verse 12. If we deny him, to me that means if we do not believe in him, if we don't accept him any longer, he will also deny us, is what is said in verse 12. After having expressed these points, Paul presents us with the passage in question from last week, and it reads, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And so the caller understood this to be saying, even if we fail to believe, he will abide faithful and we will be saved. But that's an eisegetical interpretation of the passage and it ignores context altogether. The contextual and sound reading of the passages, and if we no longer believe, he will do what he has promised, as in the passages above, because he cannot go back on his promises that he has made, like the ones mentioned in 11 and 12. If you do this, he will do that. If you do that, he will do this. If you deny him, he will deny you. 
And so what we discover is actually the exact opposite meaning in 2 Timothy 2.13 than what the caller submitted as proof of once saved, always saved. Paul warned, if you deny him, he will deny you. And he follows up with a passage that support this claim by saying, and if you believe not, he will be faithful in denying you. For he cannot deny himself. He can't deny what he has said. I hope that clears things up. And listen, I am not suggesting that the caller is dumb or, or, uh, or evil or anything like that. I make mistakes of interpretation every day. The internet's full of people who have taken this passage as a proof text for once saved, always saved. But I would suggest if you read it carefully and contextually, it says anything but that. So thank God for the Holy Spirit and for guys like this who are trying and seeking to understand truth. All right, viewer Charles M. out of Texas graciously forwarded us an article from the Atlantic Monthly Group. It is titled, Listening to Young Atheists, Lessons for a Stronger Christianity, and it's dated June 6, 2013, written by Larry Alex Taunton, who, according to the article, has spent a lot of time rubbing shoulders with some prominent atheists like Richard Hitchens, I mean, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, even though he is a Christian. All right, that's his kind of uh, background in writing this article. So, and when he's not hobnobbing around with the atheists of those guys who are still alive, uh, uh, he's defending Christianity on college campuses. And this activity has brought him face to face with a lot of uh, programs and groups for college atheists. And so as a result, he, he set up this interviewing system, which explores their journey out of faith. All right. And he's interviewed a lot of them. And it's really a fascinating study. And one of the first questions they ask these college aged atheists is, what led you to become an atheist? And the study revealed a number of surprising things. I'm going to give you seven, I think, highlights. Number one, most of the atheists interviewed had attended a Christian church in the past. Meaning they didn't just visit one, they attended one on a regular basis. The author notes, quote, most of our participants had not chosen their worldview from ideologically neutral positions at all, but in reaction to Christianity. Not Islam, not Buddhism, Christianity, end quote. Ask yourselves, why do you suppose this is the case? What is it that led these people who attended and went to a Christian church regularly, probably said they were saved, probably enjoyed all the things that, or, or participated in all the things that went on in their church, what caused these students to see right through what was going on? I think they could see the show. I think they could see what, what was being fed to them and they were too smart to, to chomp on it any longer. And I bet this greatly played a part. The second thing the interviewees uh, reve uh, revealed was that they felt the message and mission that came from their church experience was, the writer describes as, vague. And uh, the mission and message of the church message was vague. He writes, quote, the author notes that most of the interviewees admitted that they had heard plenty of messages at church encouraging, quote, social justice, community involvement, and being good, but they seldom saw the relationship between that message, Jesus Christ, and the Bible. Okay, so why do you suppose that is? I'll tell you right now, the freaking churches have stepped from teaching the word of God in a loving way. They have stopped teaching it so that people can understand the relationship between the Bible and Jesus Christ and, and, uh, and uh, relationship. And they have instead resorted to teaching about uh, the word of God in relevant and, relevant and um, in applicable ways. Listen, the words of men are vain. We, we can really philosophize and really try to do things, but when it comes to church, it's the word of God that does the teaching and the explanation of what the word says. Um, the word of God will not turn void, in other words. Christianity has uh, uh, answers to things that should be shared through the Bible, and when they're not, we see some of the results. Number three, the atheists, they felt their churches offered superficial answers to life's difficult questions. Um, this is what the article reported, I quote, 
When our participants were asked what they found unconvincing about the Christian faith, they spoke of evolution versus creation, sexuality, the reliability of the biblical text, Jesus as the only way, etc. Some had gone to church hoping to find answers to these questions. Others hoped to find answers to questions of personal significance, purpose, and ethics. Serious-minded, they often concluded that church services were largely shallow, harmless, and ultimately irrelevant. As Ben, an engineering major at the University of Texas, so bluntly put it, quote, I really started getting bored with church. So what do we say to that? Maybe it's this television, media-driven, immediate satisfaction, low-attention span generation who goes to church, and maybe the pastors are delivering uh, great passages and uh, explanations of solutions, and they're just... They just just aren't being affected. Or maybe pastors are timid, or maybe they're lazy, or maybe they're effing too indulgent to take the time to try to view what the Bible says about sex, or to talk about drugs, or to talk about homosexuality, or to talk about all these things that this age group and mindset want to talk about and know about. What does the Bible really say? And, And are those messages being delivered in love, but with sound understanding of what the Bible says? Apparently, I would suggest this report says no. Churches and their pastors can take the word, do their homework, use it to provide viable answers to their congregants, or they can dismiss the issues and they can make up fictional supports like about creationism, about evolution. They can come up with all kinds of garbage that sounds right about dinosaurs and stuff like that. Or we can get into the word, we can say what it says, we can say we don't know on things, we can say this is why we teach it this way, and and try to do some good uh, uh, that way. But I got to tell you, the latter attempts, uh, I mean the, the former attempts, if it's not real, and if it isn't based in the best study we can give, these kids are smart, and they're going to see through it, and they're going to say, I'm not going to swallow this garbage anymore. It does no bearing on my life. All right, and because of this general makeup, they're not going to be nourished or satisfied with fluff. All right, listen to this one. These once Christians, now atheists, said, for they express their respect for those ministers who took the Bible seriously. Listen to what the report says. Without fail... Our former church attending students expressed respect for those Christians who unashamedly embraced biblical teachings, end quote. I think this sends a cannonball right over the stern of every pastor's desk. If you are tempted to soft sell uh, what the Bible says is sin, but we all have it, or salvation, or avoid making theological stances on things that the Bible makes clear. If you, if you refrain from talking about hell, if you soft sell it and pedal push it a different way, but you, if you do any of those things, they'll see through it. They seem to respect those people who firmly believe and firmly teach. It's like Penn, uh, uh, Gillette, what's his name? Gillette and Teller, I can't think of his name. Penn and Teller, which one's Gillette? Is it David Gillette? Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette. Gillette. He's an atheist. But he says himself, I can't respect somebody who doesn't try to convert me to their faith. All it shows is that they don't believe in what they are proposing. And that's what these guys are saying. Really interesting. Uh, The article also said that ages 14 to 17 were decisive in a Christian's life. So the importance of teaching those kids sound stuff and really doing it with love and information. And then number six, the decision to embrace unbelief was often an emotional one. This one is really intriguing to me. The author points out that while most of the atheists initially said that it was rational decision-making and intelligent information that led them from faith, it ended up that most of them abandoned faith over emotional drivers. I can't prove this, I'm not a professional, but I would suggest that these kids have learned from media and even religious influences to relate to things emotionally uh, far more than through sound reasoning and are therefore susceptible to emotional drivers that seem to ultimately lead them out from faith. 
You cut your teeth on emotional responses to going to church. When something more emotional comes along, it has the ability to just take you right out from under it. When you approach things through a rational, reasonable approach, and you use information to establish the foundation upon which someone stands, when counter-information comes along, they are far better equipped than having some emotional experience when attending a, a church. I mean, by this is when a person has learned to rely, uh, excuse me, what I mean by this, when a person has learned to rely on, e to feel truth, rather than to have it established in a grounded presentation, that feeling will lead them astray usually one way or another. It can't last, you know. Uh, and that's why um, emotive appeals, whether they're a concert or a film or literature or a church service or a speech, are one of the worst forms in knowing how to discern truth but they are one of the best forms on how to sway people to action. That's why Hitler used the emotional appeals they used. Great music, great speeches, oratory. And, and like Goring said, you can't know Hitler through your mind. You have to feel him through your heart. Those emotions can be manipulated, and that's why many churches have turned to the emotive drivers so that people can come and have that and then feel a sense of belonging. But it doesn't create for long-life believers, in my opinion. The seventh thought the study uncovered was the internet factored heavily into their conversion to atheism. The author states, quote, when our participants were asked to cite key influences in their conversion to atheism, people, books, seminars, etc., we expected to hear references to the names of the new atheists. That's the Christopher Hitchens and, and those guys. They go on. We did not. Not once, they said, did we hear somebody uh, cite the work of one of these new atheist groups that are out there. Instead, they say, we heard vague references to videos they had watched on YouTube or website forums. Uh, I would tie the influence of internet-driven videos and website to the ruining of faith directly to the fact that these kids' faith is not firmly established on fact by God's word delivered in love in the first place. This is the fault of clergy, bottom line, through and through. The author concludes the article by saying this. These students were, above all else, idealists who longed for authenticity. And having failed to find it in their churches, they settled for non-belief that, while less grand in its promises, felt more genuine and attainable. And then he quotes one of the students at the end of the article, and it says, the student says, Christianity is something that if you really believed it, it would change your life, and you would want to change the lives of others. I haven't seen much of that, end quote. And I would add a hearty uh, amen to that observation. Uh, but then again, I would also add that, look at these atheists, if they were saved as kids, doesn't matter, they're saved anyway, so, you know, let them go be an atheist and do what they want the rest of life. They're going to heaven. All right, with that, let's have a word of prayer. God, we are a seeking people who need truth. And uh, so we pray that you will send it in abundance by and through your Holy Spirit, not the words I will speak, which are gonna be full of error and opinion and sometimes anger. We pray you'll be with those who are seeking truth, that you will open their eyes and ears and hearts that they may be converted and they can be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week I proposed the idea that the soteriological position of a pastor or the faith he represents uh, will always dictate the way that the pastor will do church. Uh, for example, Mormonism believes that Jesus plays a role in the salvation exaltation process of a person. Therefore, Jesus is mentioned. He's in the title of their church. He's referenced a few times throughout some of their meetings. But because they also believe that an individual must do all they can to merit that salvation uh, and apply it to themselves, uh, Mormonism has a very works-based approach to doing church. And all their meetings and gatherings are about this works-based approach. On the other end of the spectrum, the saved by grace, once through faith, all nothing else matter churches, typically hold stop and go services with masses coming in, hearing a message. The message usually talks about Jesus, your need for Jesus, Jesus, the need for Jesus, you need to be saved. And then they exit and go on their way. Uh, and they keep repeating that message to people who've been saved for decades. 
which is interesting that the idea of growing beyond that is usually not mentioned. Between these two polarized types, we find everything in between. So again, for example, when a doctrine exists in a church that speaking in tongues proves that somebody uh, is saved, you will almost certainly find these churches spending a lot of time and attention, that's right, speaking in tongues, because their soteriology translates into the way they do church. Again, in other words, show me a church's soteriology and we can pretty well uh, come close to describing how they do weekly services. So uh, there seems to be an exception to this though, and that is in the Reformed churches uh, or those churches that embrace five-point Calvinism strongly. It's interesting. Maintaining the once saved, always saved position, that's the perseverance of the saints, the P in the tulip, uh, they are far more instructive and regimented in how they do church than what we see in the stop and go Jesus only churches uh, around. I would suggest that part of the reason is found in the fact that five pointers also believe that there is an unconditional election of God's chosen upon certain people and a limited atonement by Jesus, which only applies to those who were specially selected. And uh, so not realizing that they once saved, always saved, they also go about having to prove to each other that they have been elected. And so their religious regimentation follows that demand. Okay, and so that was the first point in building my case for how to do church best. Soteriological positions dictate how churches do church. Additionally, I also proposed last week that while salvation cannot be lost or forfeited by and through failures in the flesh, you heard me, please remember that, because it wasn't obtained by a lack of sin in us when it was given. Uh, there is a state of mind and heart that could cause a one-time believer to walk from what has been given to him or what he or she has received. And that would be a condition of unbelief and faithlessness. After all, if once a person has been saved and they can never, ever, ever abandon that gift, then what are the reasons for doing church that are listed in the Bible? If but redundant and obsolete and just stupid. I mean, why even worry? If you've been saved by the Holy Spirit, why have church that teaches you to do other things? That's irrelevant. If in the eternal perspective, uh, uh, you're gonna be saved, it doesn't matter. So, to prove a believer can walk from salvation, I went through a verse by verse almost teaching of Hebrews chapter three last week here on air. And in response, we received a number of, of insights. One email said this, I believe you are making a mistake in your exposition of Hebrews 3. It seems whenever someone breaks their theological necks, so to speak, they do it in Matthew, Acts, or Hebrews. This is because of the transitional nature of these books. Matthew going from the Old Testament to the New, that's not true, not really. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and Acts all the way up to chapter 10 are still Old Testament. That's Jesus fulfilling his mission promised in the Old Testament. So your position there is wrong. Uh, Acts uh, from Israel to the church and Hebrews from the church to the tribulation. Hebrews is, doctrinally speaking, primarily a book written to Jewish tribulation saints. Uh, and that's really a convenient position to put that book in, by the way, for your argument. Hence, the requirement of holding fast until the end. And uh, I would question why there's a requirement at all, but I know you see that the Jews who are gonna go through the tribulation is different. But anyway, uh, he goes on, this is clear as the picture of the children of Israel preparing to enter the promised land, which is a clear type of tribulation saints preparing to enter the millennial kingdom. Furthermore, in the Pauline epistles, the primary books for church age doctrine, we have clear passages that illustrate we cannot lose our salvation. He then cites three of these passages, namely Romans 8, Ephesians 1, and 1 Corinthians 1. Now, I have to top, stop the conversation and say, you have to make this clear. This is, not about, this is not about losing salvation. It's never been about losing salvation. You don't lose it. It's not a matter of, oh, I sinned, I failed, it's lost. That is the problem. It's not about losing it. Why you use this in this email, I don't know. You don't lose it. You can't lose it. He holds you. I agree. But you can walk from it, and you know right where you left it. 
It's not lost. It's a purposeful decision, mindset of heart and mind and, and, and soul that says, screw God. I don't believe in him or his son. Forget this stuff. I renounce it completely. There's no going back. It's not the ups and downs of faith that we all have. It's not our sin. It's not our failures. Understand it's not losing salvation, but scripture is clear that you can walk from it. And that is why we have so much instruction in the churches about beware of these things. Be cautious of this. Don't do this to each other. Because when that type of feeling can come in, that type of living can come into a heart, the heart can harden, and you can ultimately turn from faith. So there's a constant warning not to let your heart become a heart of unbelief. And that is the reason we have a church. That's the reason we meet together and unify and sing and worship and learn so that our hearts will not become hardened in the face of this very difficult world. To teach otherwise is a lie. And I'm just telling the Mormons out there, if you go to a, a church that's Calvinistic in its approach or someone who says once saved, always saved, just keep praising Jesus and walk out of here and don't worry about growing in him, you're gonna be in trouble. The parable of the sower proves that emphatically to us, all right? So the guy gives us three scriptures. I'm gonna read them quickly and then we're gonna go to Doug in Boston and Roger in Massachusetts. He used Romans 8, 28, 29. This says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Leave that up there on the screen, will you, for a minute? I agree with this completely. There is nothing that can remove us. There is no man or woman or spirit that can come and remove us from uh, the security we have in Christ's shed blood where he did the work, finished foremost for us. However, you'll notice that it says that no other creature, but it doesn't say you yourself. It doesn't because you have the free will to choose to go against him. You can go against him and you'll see it's not there. In Ephesians 1, 13, 14, it says, in whom you also trusted after you have heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you have, that ye have believed. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Do I agree with that? Absolutely. I believe that when you, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and that it was there, but it's an earnest. You notice it says it's an earnest payment. It means you put that money down for the full thing to come about. And that ceiling is there. God is not gonna change his mind relative to who you are in him. But you can change yours. And then that earnest money, that earnest deposit, that ceiling will be broken and lost. And scripture says there is no more remission of sins if it is. And then uh, he also includes 1 Corinthians 1.8, who shall also confirm unto you the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that it's by Jesus Christ you will be blameless uh, and you will uh, confirm to you to the end as long as you believe. I am not gonna even give you the passages that are gonna support my position that you can walk from faith. I'm gonna do it next week, but let me give you a few more that are very popular. John 10, 28, 29. And I give unto them, this is Jesus speaking about the sheep. I give unto them eternal life that they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He repeats that phrase, no man can. There's not a man who can come along and remove you. There's not a woman or anything else, but there is you. You can choose. Okay, and uh, Hebrews seven twenty five. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by him, uh, come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is describing God and Christ's role in your salvation. Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him. But it doesn't talk about you. It's talking about God's perspective toward you. And in that, I completely adhere and support. He wants all, he longs all to come to him. Not a limited atonement. Jesus saved the atonement of the whole world and he longs all to come to him. But you have that choice. And then uh, finally in Philippians 1.6, it's a big one. 
being confident of this very thing that he which has begun a work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I completely, completely believe this. I support it. He will perform his end of the bargain. He will do what he has said he will do. He will not fail. He will not back off because you fail. However, we have two commandments according to 1 John that Christians have on their head when they become Christians. And it's listed in 1 John 3, 22, 23. You have faith in the Son, and you love. The, the new, this is a new commandment I give unto you, that you love. Those are commandments. You fail to faith, you fail to believe, you fail to love. There is a, there's, a, there's something that happens through that. The love side, I don't know. I think that has to do with the reward you're given in heaven. But the faith, you fail in that, you're in trouble. And I'm gonna provide those verses for you next week. The writer wrote, it's illogical that a Christian could lose their salvation. Uh, A saved, born again child of God is part of Christ's body. Do you think he's going to mark up his son again? No, I think he's just gonna remove the cancers. Uh, Then he says, anyway, I enjoy the show, but disagree with you completely on this. Believers that are born again cannot be unborn again or give back God's gift of salvation if they have received it. It is the hard stance. It divides church. It's all over the place. Uh, I won't go into any more. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We're going to show you a quick spot, and we'll come back and take your calls. We're back. We're going to Doug in Boston. Doug, you're on Heart of the Matter. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? A little bit of disappointed, but that's okay. How come? <laughs> well, so, I mean, like, it's confusing what you're saying. Once you say you can't lose it, and then the next time you're saying you can't. You can't like, lose it. it. Doug, you can't lose it. You can walk from it. There's a difference. Okay? No, wait it's just a like you, you can't you can't lose being married, but you can walk from it. Do you get it? You you No, no, no. No, okay, go ahead. Listen, let me explain something. Let me let me try to, to, to give you my point. I'm not a Calvinist. If you thought I'm a Calvinist. No, you don't not. have to be to believe that pernicious doctrine. Because Calvinists will be like, you know, God chooses who who goes to heaven or hell. He's the one that yeah. makes the decision for you. Then that's like very robotic. Right. But in John three sixteen says, whosoever believes it. That means anybody that believes shall be saved, not whosoever I decide, right? Do you agree with that? I do. Okay. So the, the only problem that I'm seeing, what, what we both thinking are different, is that you say that you can walk away from it, and I say even, even that you can't, you can't do. But what I'm, try, I'm going to try to back it up because, um, for instance, Last week, you said something about uh, the children of Israel not being able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Is that correct? That's what Paul said in in Hebrews 3, or the writer of Hebrews. Right. What we are forgetting is this, is that the reason why they did not enter is because they didn't believe. They never did. Because if you really go and and look at the passages, if, if you read the story, everybody that came out of Egypt... Not all of them were saved. A few were saved, and then a few, I mean, like half were saved, and then a few weren't saved. So God was making sure that people that weren't saved, they would not enter, and then have only the saved people enter the land. Okay. Because they believed. Yeah, I get that when it comes to comparing the children of Israel, but I'm not the one who did that. The writer of Hebrews is the one who uses that as the picture for the unbelief. Now you could say it's just talking about tribulation Jews, which is what how the other writer who is a Calvinist, I'm certain by reading him, uh, but look at, uh, go to 2 Peter 2, 19 through 21. This is not in the book of Hebrews. This is in 2 Peter 2, 19 through 21. All right, let me read it to you. You tell me how you explain it, and then we'll go from there. It says, are you ready? Hold on, 2 Peter 2, 
Yeah. And what verse? 19 through 21. Okay. All right. It says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, known the way of righteousness, than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Explain that to me. Okay, I'm trying to go through my pages here. You said 2 Peter 2, 19, right? You can read that one too if you want. You can read the whole book. It, 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 this is the problem nope. with the discussion on scripture because in order to really properly do it, you would have to have a photographic memory of what this whole chapter and what this whole book is saying. And I don't expect that of you and I hope you don't expect it of me. I'm presenting a, pr right. a proposition to you, Doug. You gave me a verse last week and I think I contextually showed that it was saying, listen, if you do this, you'll get that, whether it's good or evil, either way. And, and then it led into the verse you used. This verse plainly says, and I can give you five more that plainly state people who have had the truth, who knew who Christ was, who have been cleansed from their sin, who followed in belief and walked from that, there is no remission of sin for them anymore. And it's through the New Testament, Doug. So I don't, I'm right. not making this up. It's not something I want to believe. I would love to believe that I came to know Christ and I will forever, ever be saved. Someone asked me, Sean, do you think you could ever walk from your salvation? My answer used to be never. Let me tell you something. I could walk from it within probably 70, maybe 80 days. All I got to do is let my flesh live and reign. And when it does, it, it is the ugliest picture, Doug, and I become more and more doubtful, more and more faithless, and at the end of that 70 or 80 days, I could see myself easily saying, shine it, man. I don't believe that stuff anymore. Easily. Okay, so that's works. Salvation, right there. It's not works. I've already been saved. I'm not working to earn it. It's faith, and faith is not a work. Uh, James chapter 2 proves faith is not a work. He says faith without works is dead. Faith is right. not a work, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying faith is works, but you're saying if you step out of church, and then, you, then you're going to lose it because you step out of that. No, I'm not saying that you work. will. I'm not saying you will. Someone asked me, do you, I think, do you think you could ever walk? And that is how I would do it. You know what the scripture calls it? They calls it the deceitfulness of sin that hardens the heart. That's in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, listen, beware lest the deceitfulness, the lies of sin, hardens your heart to unbelief. That's why right. we... That's that's somebody before getting saved. So that guy's not... No, it's saved. talking about those who have been saved. It's talking about those who have been saved, Doug. That's the problem. Is this. It's, it's good that you talked about hardening your heart. Remember Pharaoh? Was he saved? Oh, look, we're talking Old Testament. I don't know if... Sam, Sam, I'm sure, well, I guess. Old Testament, New Testament, God, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and always. It's, it's all the same. Let's the only it. thing that, that changes is the ordinances. Okay, was Samuel saved? I don't, tell, I, don't, I don't say who is saved and who is not saved. I don't say who is going to hell and who is going to heaven. I just know what the Bible says and I teach what it says. Was Samuel saved? Right. I would assume so, I guess. I don't know. Okay, let me, let me just say something. Going back to John 10, that you, uh, you, you, you put it on the, on the screen a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, John 10, 30, I think, or 20, 20, 20 29, and 30. Uh, and I give them to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That means, like, no man will pluck them out of my hand. That, that includes you. You, you. Not even you can walk away from it. Do you think you're stronger than God? That's hand? an eisegetical like reading of the passage. You. That's an eisegetical. You're reading into the passage. That's not what it says. And then it says, what if you're a woman? which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. They can't. I'm my father at one. Okay, you got to look like at the Greek word for pluck. If I understand it right, and I remember right, it doesn't mean to, uh, it means to snatch them away, to grab them and right. take them away. You don't have to fear in that. So we don't have to fear for that. 
We don't have to fear for us doing. That's what the scriptures are there for. To reassure somebody who is a believer, look, you don't have to worry. It's not about you and how good you have been or the works you're doing. Relax. Nobody's going to come around here and snatch you out. But we have other passages, Doug, which you are plainly ignoring that suggest that you can walk from faith. You're ignoring those well, I passages. I mean, like, it, it, there's, there's many people that, 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 that doubted and walked from faith in the Bible. I mean, like, how about, how about John the Baptist? Wasn't he the greatest man that ever lived at Jesus' time when he said besides him? And Jesus said, greater is, any, greater is the least in the kingdom of heaven who follows right. after him. Remember what happened to him? He even doubted. He's like, hey, are you the one that we should or should we, or should we follow somebody Doug, else? Doug, it's not and about the... he didn't believe. It's not about the up and down doubtings, Doug. Do you listen? You're as frustrated as the Mormons. Listen, I said it's not about the waiver we have in faith. It's not about John who's put in prison and is about to lose his head when he sends his messengers to Jesus to say, are you really the one? He wondered. It's okay. We have those moments. Those are the moments when God never lets us go. It's when Doug, somebody who says, screw you, God, screw you. I don't believe you. I do not want you in my life. Your son, a joke, a myth, a fable. I was raised on this stuff. I had a born-again experience. I thought I was Christian. I followed it. I did everything. I don't believe anymore. Forget it. I well, believed to, in my heart. Well, to me, to me, that sounds like a reprobate. He was never saved. To me, oh, that's, that's always the like. answer, isn't it? But we have scripture here that talks about those who have been saved, who, when they walk, are lost forever. You're not answering those passages. Why? Well, it's because I'm telling you, because they sound like reprobates. If you go to Romans 1, let me just... What is he... Just one chapter then. Just one chapter from Romans 1. One verse? Uh, Romans 1, um, 21. It says, because that when they knew God... Wait a minute. They knew God. Yeah. They glorified him not as God. Yeah. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Therefore, right? they are without this excuse. This sounds like, like out of the surface. That's not what it's saying. But Doug, that's not what the passage said I read to you from Peter. It was emphatic on who they were. If you read them again, look it. I'm just going to give them to you because we're going to go to a next caller, but I'm going to give these to you. You tell me. You read them and you tell me they're all talking about people who are just fluctuating in their faith. All right? Go to 2 Peter 2, 19 through 21. You go to Hebrews 10, 26, Hebrews 3, 6, Romans 8, 13. The parable of the vine. And Jesus said, look it. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you're fine. But if you don't abide in me, the angels will come and gather you up and they'll burn you. I don't know what he's talking about there. If you're in the vine, you're in the vine. You're a believer when you're in the vine. You're producing fruit. But he says, if you don't abide any longer, you're cut off. Okay, look at Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. 2 Peter 1, 9. Colossians 1, 23. 1 Timothy 4, 1. 1 Timothy 5, 12 through 11 through uh, uh, 12. Look at Isaiah 43, which presents a perfect picture of the whole matter. You ignore those. And what they emphatically right. say, Doug, emphatically say, you ignore them and you justify it because your reasoning wants to believe it. You're no different. I want to believe what the scripture says. If you can show me oh. that a different way to see it, I'll agree with you. Okay, I got to go to Roger. Let's come back next week and we'll try it again. I'm not cutting you off. Okay. All right, thanks. Roger, North Adams, you're on Heart of the Matter. Roger. Roger. Hello. John, can you hear me? I can. You're on the air, my friend. All right, Sean, thanks for having my, taking my call. I'm the one who wrote the uh, email that you responded to. Oh, which, oh, the one in, the, in the about uh, once saved, always saved? Yes, sir. And Hebrews 3? Uh, that's right. So, uh, first of all, I want to apologize for if I misstated your position, which I believe I did. Um, I understand you don't believe that you can lose your salvation, but you can walk from it. Right. Okay, secondly, to clarify, I'm not a Calvinist, so you're... <laughs> Dang! Yeah, you're I want to be that. right in that. <laughs> you sound right. like one, Adam, okay. Roger. Yeah. Well, I, I think you have some point, some good points, but I think I disagree with what you're saying about, well, I mean, if you're one saved, always saved, why bother in the Christian walk? You know, just get saved and then go on, do whatever you want. Is okay, that, good. Is that essentially what you're saying? I mean, Yeah, I, I think that's one point as to why. Why the okay. warnings about false prophets, why the warnings about all the things that it says, but give me the answer, because I'm willing to hear on that one. I realize that's a weak one, but I don't understand why we even care. 
every church should be an in and out church of let's go in and praise Jesus. We've been saved and not worry about anything else. So explain no, it. I, th- I think people who are saved are, going, are not going to, to look at it that way. They're, they're going to want to, to grow in the word. They're going to want to, uh, you know, do the things of God and, and, and be used by him. And they can only do that by abiding in the word and, and, and carrying on through the proper methods and not just going out and doing whatever they want. But if they do go out and sin, I mean, have you sinned since you've been saved? I have, and, and certainly I don't, I don't think that disqualifies me. But what you're saying essentially is the only sin that can take you out of the body of Christ is the sin of unbelief. So basically you can be, as I put it, unborn again. Am I misunderstanding you? No, you're not. You're, you're correct in that assessment. Uh, but, but let me say, let me just point out one of the problems inherent to your argument. What sure. you, what you say is those who are truly born again will want to pursue and, and go and follow, and they will do what the, what is prescribed so that they can grow in faith and show their love for the Lord. What that does is it automatically, whether you realize it or not, sets up a system of legalism, which is what the law did. And we look on the external appearances of what people do, and we say, that person coming to church, they only come sometimes, and I really haven't seen them do very much uh, here at church. I'm not sure if they're even saved. And if I haven't heard that quote a thousand times since I've been a Christian, I haven't heard it a million. I mean, I'm not sure if they're saved. Now, where does that come from? It comes from the idea that you have to then show that you are this way. Yep, you're, you're right. I'm, uh, you're Right on, I think, because I th- it comes from, you know, you have a Calvin, if you have a Calvinistic view of it, which essentially you're asserting that I do. No, no, I no, I, I, I stand corrected. Yeah, um, but it, if you're saying the Calvinistic view, basically, that, that these are elect, and now the way I've noticed is that a Calvinism pr- basically in practice turns out to be Arminianism, where you have people, in order to prove that yeah. they're the elect, they ha- they're going on doing these works. Yeah. You know, to prove to themselves or to others that they're saved. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying that we should look at people's works and then we'll say, oh, they don't come uh, to church as often as me, or they don't dress as nice as me, or they sin or have different sins than me. Therefore, they're not saved. I don't think we, you should do that. But I, I would say that that uh, fruits are can be an evidence of salvation, but not always. Uh, it can be deceptive in, in some cases. Obviously, with with you know, like Mormonism, for example, the, the so-called fruits. Uh, but uh, so what, what I'm saying here is my position on Hebrews, when, and when I'm saying uh, when anybody breaks their theological neck, so to speak, in Matthew, Acts, or Hebrews, it does seem to be the case for me. I mean, you're not saying that you can lose your salvation by some sin, but that you can walk away from it. Now, I would take it, if you're going to take that position based on Hebrews, that you, if, once you do that, if I unbelieve or am unborn again, you cannot be... You're, you're done. There's no more hope. You're for you. done. You're, you're finished. Yeah, you're done. Yeah, okay. That, that, at least that's consistent with, with the exposition. I would just think that when you, you have these verses in, in the Pauline epistles that seem to speak to me of being, uh, of if you've trusted in Christ sincerely, you are saved. I think that it's true. Hebrews in doctrinally refers to tribulation saints, especially when we look at Hebrews 10, uh, when it talks about, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Right. Now, that's not true for any Christian. In the no, church no, 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 age. no. It's totally true because what is the sin a Christian commits, Roger? What well, is the sin? According to you, it's a sin of unbelief, correct? That's right. That's the only sin that a, a Christian can commit. If Jesus paid for sin, past, present, and future, and we're to yeah. believe on him for having done it, the sin we go to hell for is unbelief. So when it says, if you sin willfully after you have been saved, that's what it's talking about. If you, if you don't believe willfully. Sure, that's your. Uh, the, I, I don't know who else's interpretation to understand. I say I think it makes more. I, you, we have okay, Roger. Let me present to you the same passage, and you explain to me. I'm removing the Hebrews argument you proposed, and listen to this. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse than them than from the beginning, for it had been better. They have not known the way of righteousness than after they had known it and turned from the holy commandment delivering, uh, delivered unto them. How do you explain that in Peter? Well, I would say those people aren't saved. I'm not alone in this. Okay, but uh, wait. It says here that they have, through, they have escaped the pollutions of the world through a knowledge, gnosko, of the Lord Jesus Christ and 
okay, it says that they have escaped and that they had the knowledge. Yeah. And you're saying that they were never, and it's better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. They knew the way of righteousness. They had the knowledge, but you're saying they were never believers. Yeah. It's too convenient. Look at, look at that passage. That doesn't say they unbelieved. It says they were entangled therein, uh, tangled again therein. In what? In the pollutions of the world. That would be sin. The pollutions of the world sin. And what does sin do according to Hebrews 10? It hardens the heart and the heart becomes unbelieving. If you go to 1 John, this is the problem. I don't like to do this because it's endless and you can come back to it. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son of Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Those are the commandments to Christians. Now here's the point and then I'll let you end the argument, okay? Here's the point. God looks at the heart of belief. Not whether somebody is coming to church, not whether what they are doing. He looks at their heart. So whether somebody is producing fruits of activity or doing good is irrelevant because he looks upon the heart. That's where the faith comes in line. But by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. So what you show others that you're a believer by is your love. You can't show them your faith. You show them your love, and those are the fruits that we are exhibiting. The love to to forgive and to be meek and to be humble and all those things. It's not the works of coming to church. And so a true believer who believes in their heart could fail in all the outward appearances that the Pharisees loved, and they they could be celebrated when they die as one of the greatest Christians because of their faith and their love. Okay, now you can finish it. All right, I agree with basically all that you said there. I don't, I don't believe that, that we're, obviously I don't believe that we're saved by our outward appearances or that uh, those things are having to do with salvation, although I do believe they could be, uh, they could be evidences of thereby, not necessarily always. I okay. understand God looks at the heart and, and that's the important thing, not the external appearances, although I believe that behavior and, and, and doing things, those are important because they're commanded in, in the Pauline epistles. <laughs> Uh, and other other places, I don't think I don't. I think it's not. We can't. I want you to respond to this. Uh, it's, you, so from what I'm hearing you say, it's that it doesn't matter what you do. It's just as long as you're saved. Now I agree that as long as salvation is concerned, it, you're saved. Yeah. But I also think that it's important to to do the correct things. Not that those merit salvation. Those come afterwards because if you're saved, you want to. Not that we can judge people. If I say, look, I don't believe we're judging anybody. Say, oh, he's not doing, he's doing different sins than me, etc. What are the right things? Well, to keep the things that are outlined in the Pauline epistles, being separate from the world, keeping, you know, those type of things. Up to conjecture, up to, I know people who hang out with whores and drug addicts and the best Christians I know. What does sure, separate from I, the world I, I, mean? Yeah. That's, it all comes okay. down, simmers down to love. That's what it simmers down to. It's okay, the but, love. But, okay. Just to go back to, to where we were before. Uh, to Second Peter, if we're going to say that that's um, people who believe and now they don't, it says, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of, okay, so they've escaped the pollutions of the world, how? then they are again entangled therein. How did they escape? How did they escape the pollutions of the world? Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus. Okay, Christ. and knowing Him is eternal life. To know yeah. Him and the Father is eternal life. So they knew Him. And it's by him they escaped the, the, the things of this world. And they returned to the beggarly elements. Their hearts became hardened. It's better that they had never known the truth. That is a pure and clear explanation, Roger. I like your mind. I love your heart. You've taught me things. I got to end it because we're out of time. Keep watching. I'll keep learning. When I err, I will embrace it because I want truth. I don't want schnit. I want truth. If you can present it to me and show me how these passages... And I'll give you more in the email, but we'll talk. All right, my brother? All right, John, thanks a lot. Let me just say, I've watched you go after the Mormons. <laughs> you know, debate the Mormons all these times, and now I'm on the other end of it. <laughs> it's fun. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks. God bless. Uh, really quickly, <clears throat> two minutes left. I heard your sermon on creeds. You are correct. There is no place in the Word of God. However, you have been misled to accept the Trinity as a biblical truth. Um, uh, Jesus is not Jehovah. This is a growing trend. I, I'm hearing it more and more from people. I uh, heard it just the other night at a Bible, women's Bible study. Jesus is not Jehovah. Now, Jehovah is a mispronunciation. It's a mispronunciation of his name. It's Yahweh, and that's even a mispronunciation. But that is God's proper noun name. I'm Sean. He is J, He's Jehovah, okay? And if you look at Scripture, you will find 
plenty of passages, Old Testament and New, that identify him as, it's, it's evidence in the King James as Lord, capital L, capital O-R-D, but the O-R-D are smaller, but they're still capitalized. That is the same name as Jehovah. And you will see that throughout scripture, it will use Lord and it will describe him as our redeemer, our savior, our creator, the one who created all things. It will show him as the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. And we find the same thing in, in Revelation 1.11, that he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning in the end. All these things, I'm gonna tell you something. Uh, the great Shema Deuteronomy says there is one God. We have manifestations of him in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. I don't even care about the word. All I know, Jesus, God in the flesh, God eternally now. With that, we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job, audience.